Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring mind and body, the mind-body relationship in the light of parapsychology in particular, and ancient spiritual traditions as well as philosophy. With me today is Russell Targ, physicist and parapsychologist. Russell was one of the initiators of the remote viewing program that was funded by the government and ran for 20 years. He inaugurated that research at SRI International. He is the producer of the documentary released in 2019 called Third Eye Spies. He is also the author or co-author or co-editor of numerous books, including Mind at Large, Mind Reach, Limitless Mind, The Heart of the Mind, The Mind Race, Miracles of mind, and an autobiography called Do You See What I See? I'll be joining Russell on Skype, so now I'm going to switch over to the Skype video. Hello, Russell. It's good to be with you once again. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the mind-matter relationship. And I know you approach the topic both as a parapsychologist and as a, a physicist. So, I, I suppose it's worth mentioning that the founders of quantum physics, and particularly Erwin Schrodinger, wrote, wrote extensively about this. And uh, when you read their writing, it's uh, reads rather similar to the writings of various mystics. That's right. Schrodinger was an enthusiastic Vedantist. Advaita Vedanta was something that informed his whole life. And the idea of Advaita means not divided. Advaita in Sanskrit means not divi no division. And the push throughout all of the teachings from Ramana Maharshi through the present teachers, Ramana Maharshi was an Advaita teacher in the 1950s. And the idea of Advaita and the idea of their whole view of consciousness is that we should make an effort to discover who we are. So you could sit with a Advaita teacher as I have for a decade. My teacher was named Gangaji, and she was a student of uh, Ramana Maharshi's student, uh, F.W. Punja. So I have a picture of uh, Punja with Gangaji and a picture of Gangaji with me. So we have a, I feel that I'm part of that lineage, obviously, uh, I'm not a teacher of Advaita Vedanta, but she greatly informed me and calmed me down for the decade that I was with her. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an unusual situation with you and me, Jeffrey. I've spoken to you a number of times about interesting things I've seen in the laboratory, and I can describe what happened, what we think it means, and what the data looks like. And I may what I think of as a reformed positivist, logical positivist. The positivists feel that if you can't verify and quantify what you're describing as nonsense. So from the beginning 1900s, where you had Bertrand Russell and uh, Moritz Schlick and Wittgenstein and Kurt Gödel, all these famous guys were passionate about the problems that religion created. You're talking so, about the Vienna Circle, I imagine. The Vienna Circle. Yeah. These are the logical positivists, some of the smartest people, historically known, some of the smartest people in the world, especially Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell, mm -hmm. uh, felt that religion was a huge problem, and out of their musings together came this idea of logical positivism. Uh, uh, Karl Popper was part of them and his idea of verifiability. 
If you can't verify it, it didn't happen. Actually, Popper focused on falsifiability, uh, as I recall. That's right. So in 1982, I did an experiment where we were uh, forecasting changes in the silver commodity market. We hypothesized that a psychic could look into the future, describe the object that he would be handed a week in advance, and that would be the object that he saw would constitute his forecast of whether the market was going up or going down a little or a lot. And we said that we, we think that this will demonstrate conclusively that we have psychic functioning going on. And we did that nine times in a row, and all nine of them were correct. So we, this was a effort to falsify ESP, and it wasn't falsified, it was demonstrated. So I always considered that a demonstration of psychic abilities, but I suppose in Popper's terminology, we attempted to falsify it, and it was not falsified. Right. Right. So you have an enormous amount of data uh, for precognition, for extrasensory perception that bears very heavily on the uh, mind-body problem. That's right. The mind-body problem was really created in the 17th century by uh, Descartes. Mm -hmm. Descartes did a lot of very, very useful thing. He invented Cartesian coordinates, which is a great contribution. And he had the idea that he sees the body in front of him, and there appears to be a mind inside that's quite different from the body. And he had the idea that there's a non-corporal mind that's quite different from the physical body. Mm -hmm. Now, what's not generally known is that the mind-body, which was first enunciated in our epoch, at least, by René Descartes mm -hmm. in the 1600s, he created the mind-body situation because he, was, he believed in survival, which I had not initially known. I wrote, I wrote a whole book dealing with the mind-body problem, and I never encountered that till recently, till preparing for you, that Descartes' big interest, he, he felt confident that he was going to survive his physical death. He, he was, I believe, a devout Catholic. His instituting the mind-body dichotomy meant that when they bury him or cremate him, he's not entirely gone but his mind survives. Mm -hmm. As I recall, he defined two different substances. Matter, he says, has extension in space, but mind does not have any extension in space. That's right. What we know now is that the mind is efficacious, mm -hmm. and he did not know that. If he had known that, he may have had a different idea. The, the scientific research in parapsychology, you know, of, of which you've done an abundant quantity, really didn't exist in his day. That's right. William Broad, who's a great friend of yours and mine, uh, did a lot of experiments where the thoughts of one person affects the physiology of another person. Yes. In fact, he wrote a book that I helped publish called Distant Mental Influence, mm -hmm. where he... he uh, describes 12 of his favorite experiments where Broad sits in the laboratory and someone else is in a studio. Broad looks at the person's video image and on a random schedule, he will try and excite that distant person mm -hmm. or relax them. And it's quite systematically demonstrated that when Broad tries to excite them, their uh, heart rate or their galvanic skin response will increase. When he tries to relax them, uh, he'll put them to sleep. In fact, Broad, in general, Broad, often Broad worked with Marilyn Schlitz, the energetic young researcher at the time. And in general, Marilyn had the job of exciting them and waking them up, and Broad had the job of putting them to sleep. <laughs> at, a, at a distance, and that was very successful. Mm -hmm. So he published many experiments, 
and then I helped him put those together. We chose our 12 favorite public, 12 favorite published experiments where the mind of a distant person can directly affect the physiology of a distant person in a laboratory from whom he's very well shielded. Mm -hmm. And I consider that, uh, again, we can talk about falsifiability or not. I consider that a convi I'm convinced from those experiments that uh, consciousness has uh, is efficacious in doing stuff. That, that's pretty clear, I think, to me. The question regarding those experiments is, was this effect uh, caused by psychokinesis, by a direct interaction from the mind of one person to the body of another person, or was it more a question of telepathic suggestion, uh, even telepathic hypnotic suggestion, so it was mind to mind? I think that's not known but for our argument today, that doesn't matter. We're showing that consciousness can do stuff at a distance outside the body, that there's a connection. And, and the philosophical implications of that fact are so staggering that uh, the academic community in general refuses to even look at the data. That's right. The people who particularly have trouble with that are the materialists. Mm-hmm. And to, today, the materialists call themselves physicalists, which is a kind of uh, apology is for uh, promissory materialism. Mm -hmm. The physicalist says, yes, uh, there seems to be something like ESP, but I don't, I don't believe that consciousness actually does stuff, but we'll one day know how it all works on electromagnetic or other basis. And I'll promise you one day the physical phenomena will come out. But of course, right now there's no evidence for it. And, and the reason that uh, there's no evidence is, is because, as I understand it, they, when we talk about matter in terms of physics, there's, there's no evidence of anything akin to consciousness uh, in molecules and uh, subatomic particles. That's right. There's no, there's no, evi no evidence. There, there are vitalists who believe that everything is alive, yeah. that everything has consciousness. I, I happen to know that uh, Lenin believes that. So within the Soviet Union, the idea of psychic abilities was okay with Lenin supported Vasiliev, as you know, mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union, because Lenin thought that everything had consciousness. The unusual, and, and he didn't think that that was supernatural. He he was a Marxist materialist, uh, and yet he was uh, open to the idea that material itself possessed consciousness. That's right. Wasn't that clever? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, today there are people who who take a similar point of view. They're called panpsychists, and they they would say that, you know, there is no difference between mind and matter. Yeah. Now, Schrodinger felt that we were all connected. Because of his Advaita feelings, he felt that separation is an illusion. Mm -hmm. There's only one consciousness, not no multiple. That's right. Which sort of goes against our common sense experience. I mean, most of us live our lives believing that we are separate from each other. That's right. Uh, Schrodinger felt there was no separation, and he thought that consciousness was fundamental. Mm-hmm. You could say you you might say that he was an idealist. Yeah. And uh in in Buddhism there's a problem with idealism. The the idealists in Buddhism tend to believe that everything is mind. Mm -hmm. And the other side the other track are the materialists who believe that it's all material. And the middle ground where people who were in line with uh, Nagarjuna, who wrote at the time of Christ, who felt that most things are neither this nor not this. Hmm. So in a lot of the writings of Buddhism, in the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra, you run into things that are inexplicable. That is, no matter what, 
within within our with our in our dualistic framework there's no way to understand that and people just read over it there's uh Buddhist student asked him the Diamond Sutra, "Will this teaching be known in a uh, hundred years from now?" And Buddha's response is that this is neither a teaching nor not a teaching. Take that, you. <laughs> and Nargajuna, who was really the name, I always mispronounce this Nagajuna. Mm. The, the Nagas were the sea creatures that were his friends, and his other name was really Arjuna. Arjuna. Mm. So he's known as Nagajuna. I see. And he is the one who said that most things are neither true nor not true, and that all our suffering is due to Aristotle. I don't, know, I don't know if he actually said that, but I attribute yeah. that to him. I, you're paraphrasing, but th there is a possibility, as, as we discussed earlier, that Nagarjuna was exposed to some of the philosophy of Aristotle because Alexander the Great came, who was a student of Aristotle, brought his armies all the way into India, uh, I think uh, several years before Nagarjuna. And as I as I read Nagarjuna, I, I came to the idea that his teaching was really Aristotle creates a lot of suffering mm. because in the entire Western pantheon, we believe that uh, a thing is either true or it's not true. Or, or if it's neither true nor not true, then it's meaningless. That's right. <laughs> but Aristotle is possibly most famous for his law of the excluded middle. Mm-hmm. That it's either white or it's not white. It can't be, there's no gray in Aristotle's teaching. And that lack of the middle, I mean, it's a law of the excluded middle. It's the basis of all science. I've either proved it or I haven't proved it. It's either turned on or it's not turned on. But in, in recent years, we've seen the development of uh, d new forms of logic. For example, uh, I understand in uh, fields like optics, uh, uh, the very precision telescopes and so on operate on what is known as fuzzy logic, where uh, there is the possibility of neither true nor false. That's right. There's a big area of computational theory. Mm -hmm. And Nagarjuna said that suffering comes from the exclusion of the middle. Yeah. He said, in our lives, almost everything we experience is in the gray area, is neither true nor not true. Mm -hmm. For example, in the mind-body situation, he would consider, and I consider that a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. The whole, people are always trying to engage, as a physicist, I'm resistant to being engaged in mind-body conversations anyway. But for years, since I discovered Nagarjuna, oh, 50 years ago, when I was a graduate student at Columbia, I ran into a teacher who was passionate about Nagarjuna. She felt that this was a unsung hero of world thought. Mm. Well, it, you've also pointed out to me earlier that the uh, writings of Nagarjuna are all, uh, rather similar to the uh, physical science uh, concept of complementarity, like the wave-particle duality. That's right. That's an extremely good. As Niels Bohr based his whole view of the um, of the atom and the wave-particle interactions. That is, the wave-particle duality comes from the problem when you shine light through a prism, it behaves exactly like waves going through glass, mm -hmm. and they disperse in accordance with their color precisely as, as waves would do. So if you have a examination uh, how saying, I've shown a light into this prism, how far will the red disperse from the blue you know how to calculate that based on the index of refraction of, of the prism. Mm -hmm. On your next question, you say, I've shown this light beam through two slits, and you're going to get two-slit interference. Based on the distance between the slits, how far will the 
uh, particles move. And that's, again, a wave interaction. The waves interfere. However, as I spent a lot of time in a laser, lab laser laboratory where you can start dropping, and as I do that, I'm actually dropping in filters, dropping in neutral density filters, so you can cut down the laser intensity on the screen until you know for a fact you never have more than one photon in the system at a time. Because if you have a photo detector back there, it goes tick, tick, tick each time a photon goes through. But if you have a photographic screen that will accumulate all the photons, you'll see the same interference fringes. So it's very mysterious. In fact, people explain this. There is no satisfactory explanation for this. A lot of people will tell you stories, and the stories are rather metaphysical. The, the story that a physics student wants to know is, since you have only one photon in the apparatus at a time, how do you get interference? Mm -hmm. There's presently no good answer for that, as... There are a lot of things in physics for which there are no good answer. But this particular thing is a very good demonstration of the wave-particle duality. When you shine light through a prism, it's a wave. When you shine light through an interferometer, there are particles. I'm under the impression, Russell, that one of the reasons that people, particularly in academia, are so fixated on the materialistic uh, metaphysics is because of the enormous success uh, that we have had with technology. Automobiles, airplanes, computers, atomic bombs are all the result of uh, the application of materialistic science. And it, it seems to me that people make a mistake when they generalize from, from the great success of technology to say, well, this is how nature itself is, that nature conforms in every regard to the, uh, the principles of materialism when it's as you've pointed out, there are many, many areas of physics that lead to paradoxes. That's right. In uh, the end of the end of the 20th century, I was frequently on the stage with Michio Kaku, and he did not believe in consciousness at that time. He's a string theory mm -hmm. physicist. He's written extensively on hyperspace, as I recall. That's right. Mm -hmm. And he said, within a few years, we will be able to describe everything you can measure in an equation less than an inch long. So there. <laughs> Promissory and, materialism. Right. Yeah. Within two years, astronomers had discovered dark matter and dark energy. And he's completely back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. And that's happened again and again, century after century. Kurt Gödel sort of prepared us for that. Gödel was, again, one of the uh, logical positivists. And he, his great contribution, many people think that he and Wittgenstein were the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, he's very famous for uh, his incompleteness theorem. That's right. And, and the incompleteness theorem says that any time you have a collection of postulates or ideas that are sufficiently complicated, there will be true sentences you can say, or let's say there are sentences you can say about your field, and you can't determine whether they're true or not true. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that's the current state of modern physics. I, I don't think that people are saying that. But modern physics has enough indeterminate ideas or postulates, even starting with the two-slit interference. Mm -hmm. Now, my but, reading of the Gödel's incompleteness theorem is just uh, has maybe a bit of a different emphasis. I I thought he was essentially saying that you cannot have any logical system of thought capable of explaining itself. That including mind, uh, that if you want to explain anything, you have to explain it from the outside. Otherwise, your explanation will be incomplete. 
That's right. You can't know all about yourself if you have no place to stand. But from the perspective of uh, Advaita Vedanta, it suggests that we think of ourselves as, you know, the our ego consciousness, our life history, our, you know, we're born and we die. But uh, it would seem to me that Advaita is suggesting that we're like drops in the ocean of a much larger uh, consciousness. That's right. Advaita is very happy with the drops in the ocean idea. And the conclusion of Gödel, which people don't like, is that you, there are many questions which you're simply not going to get an answer to because they don't have an answer in ordinary logic. So the answer has to come from outside of whatever logical system you're working with. Or it can be a dear, or it can be misapprehension of the space-time you live in. Mm-hmm. That is, we've become masters of four-dimensional space-time, but four-dimensional space-time does not support a simple explanation of psychic abilities. Yeah. Psychic abilities definitely transcend ordinary space-time, because the evidence is that they're non-local. That is, the accuracy and reliability of what we see is independent of distance and independent of time. And that violates ordinary ideas of uh, relativity and and space-time. It would be wrong to say that it violates physics, because we can... there, There are models where... Physics continues to function, but the models are multidimensional. Mm. So if you have, if our space-time is actually complex rather than just real, then you can make a eight-dimensional space-time. To keep that simple, we have a regular space-time, four, four, four dimensions, and each of those familiar dimensions, up and down, left and right, and so forth, are there, except in addition to having a real part, they have an imaginary part. So the eight-dimensional model isn't adding in new dimensions, not saying uh, four dimensions is not enough, let's add in another dimension. What Elizabeth Rauscher and I have been talking about is a complex space-time, which was in fact talked about by by Minkowski in the 1900s. Minkowski was a friend of Einstein, and Einstein was not able to formulate special relativity even. He could he had the idea, but it didn't work out in ordinary space-time. Binkowski said, if you make one of the dimensions imaginary, if you have X, Y, Z, the space dimensions, and multiply the speed of light, multiply time, by the speed of light and the square root of minus one, giving yourself an imaginary number, then you have a complex space-time and relativity works. And relativity has been working very well. What Minkowski had in mind was actually a totally complex eight-dimensional space-time. And Einstein said, I don't need that for, uh, thank you very much for complex time. That'll do the trick. Hmm. So our idea of complex space-time is not, here's ESP, let's add in another dimension, maybe that'll work, but it has uh, very good antecedents from the uh, foundations of general relativity. You know, what what you're describing also reminds me of uh, some work uh, done by Wolfgang Pauli, in which he... Uh, in his uh, Jungian analysis had a series of dreams in which he was encountering in his dream life a a mysterious figure who was explaining the mind-body problem to him and basically said exactly what you're saying and and that the imaginary dimensions, those uh, dimensions uh, multiplied by the square root of minus one, which is an imaginary number, uh, that those are the dimensions that signified consciousness. I think that that's a correct picture. Mm-hmm. So we've what we've been talking about is the mind-body problem, and we have a lot of evidence that the mind is efficacious. The mind can actually do stuff, but there's all but materialists also have a problem with survival, 
and the survival of consciousness, not, not only can my thoughts send you a picture, that is, I do that when I do workshops often, that I will tell them uh, to do experiments with one another where you simply visualize something and get your partner to draw what you're visualizing. Mm-hmm. Pure, pure telepathy experiments, except, of course, the person eventually gets to see the right answer if you draw it. But the uh, distant experiments that uh, William Broad and Marilyn Schlitz did, there's nothing to see. My thoughts affect your physiology. Now, we could also talk about the other side of the the mind-body problem is worried about is mind efficacious, and I think there's good evidence that it is. And there's also good evidence that some aspect of the mind survives. Let's talk about that, because I know that our uh, good friend, Ed May, uh, a parapsychologist who considers himself a physicalist, has often said that if we could prove survival of consciousness after death, then he would uh, give up his physicalism and uh, uh, join uh, one of the other philosophical camps. Well, as I was preparing to talk with you, uh, I thought that I would talk about perhaps the famous experiments done by uh, the English medium, uh, Mrs. Leonard, mm-hmm. who conducted a seance with uh, F.W. Myers, and Myers talked to his deceased friend from Cambridge, another philosopher, and they chatted with each other as though they were doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. And one was there, and the other was deceased. And the great body of data and you in my mind that's like xenoglossy it's as though they're speaking a different language that you can't fake and i've seen the transcript of myers talking to his friend and i find it very compelling because uh mrs leonard was not a educated person particularly i can talk to our good friend steve browdy And he sort of blows me off and said, that's interesting, but you actually don't know any philosophy. (laughs) We could have a philosophical conversation. Let's just agree that you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Former chair of the the philosophy department at the University of Maryland, so he's quite particular. He's a good friend of ours and a distinguished philosopher. It's yeah. My my point is that you you can't fake being a philosopher any more than you can fake speaking French if you don't speak French. But instead of going back to to those people, I thought that I would tell you about a, a recent case that is probably not known at all, in which I had contact with all the participants. I was giving a lecture in Boulder, Colorado. I was teaching at Naropa Institute, which is a, um, we can call it a a Buddhist teaching center. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, I was invited to a party at a beautiful house in Boulder. And one of my students came and said, "Uh, could I tell you about uh, an experiment, an event recently where somebody died and appears to have come back. Would you be interested in such a thing? Because I was there and it happened. And she's a very nice lady. I think of her as a older woman. Of course, I'm now much older than she was, but she had all this nice fluffy white hair and she was talking about an event that took place with her granddaughter. She ran the League of Women Voters, League of Women Voters in uh, Arizona where she lived. And what happened is grandma took her little daughter, her little granddaughter, Haley, for a walk in the Ozark wilderness area to visit the uh, waterfall. So grandma and six-year-old Haley went for a walk down the path with some friends, and they could see the fall in the distance, uh, but was getting late. Grandma said, we've got to go back. And Haley didn't want to do that. And she somehow slipped away. Mm-hmm. And one minute she was there. And as if you've ever walked with a child, the child can just disappear. Yep. And, and this is heavily wooded. That's right. Yeah. And they looked all over and they couldn't find her. And 
grandma was panic stricken. She, she just, what she said to me is, I've had this flash that my son would kill me if I lost his daughter mm. in the wilderness. Why did you take my daughter to the wilderness? So she quickly went back to town. They came out with a search party and they couldn't find Haley. And the fire trucks came in and a book was written uh, by, the cover. by a tour guide yeah. who lived there. And he wrote a book about this because the terrain is so rough that he couldn't imagine how a child could get lost and survive. But a day went by and they had helicopters coming in searching for Haley. So this was a major event in the, in the Ozark wilderness. And this would have been, see, I met them in, um, 2001, the year after the year that the book was written by the tour guide and the year, the year that this happened. So I, as it turned out, Haley was found, and I got to meet Haley mm-hmm. and her grandmother and the tour guide. Mm-hmm. And why we're talking about this is that at the end of the second day, everyone was frantic. You had this little child in flip-flops. She's on the top of a bluff. The canyon was 700 feet below, and it was like a, playing at the ridge of the Grand Canyon, that a one misstep and you're dead. Mm-hmm. And they, she went to uh, Harold McCoy, who's a famous medium, not far away, and said, I've lost my granddaughter. It's going to be a tragedy. We're in the wilderness area here. And he said, all right, I understand. I've got, I've got a whole picture of the scene in my mind. Just believe me, they're going to find your granddaughter. She's being taken care of by a young woman right now. And tomorrow, two men on horseback will find her. Don't worry about a thing. So that certainly put her mind at rest. She didn't know what to make of this. She's not into um, psychic stuff, not into uh, dowsing, but certainly put her mind at rest. Following day, uh, two men on horseback were searching at the base of the falls, and there's Haley asleep at the edge of the river, totally okay, except exhausted and emaciated, having nothing to eat much for three days. And they talk, they told, they took Haley across the saddle and brought her, brought her back to town. She was alive pretty well. Grandma was there. And Haley said, Oh, everything was fine. As soon as I lost you, a little girl came along and she said she would take care of me. And this girl was named Alicia. And wherever we went, she was able to find berries and find stuff to eat. And we would hide in her cave at night. She was gone two nights. Mm-hmm. and But Alicia was taking care of her. And Alicia had a silver flashlight with her so they could always see where they were going. And... So here I am, and, I, I, and I'm okay. And she drew a picture of Alicia for, for Grandma so she could see what this person looks like because Grandma is, is very alert. This is obviously a crazy situation uh, because Haley was just fine. Who's this woman who took care of her, this five-year-old Alicia? So Grandma went to the library and had the astute question, has any young young person ever died in this area? In other words, the grandmother suspected that this Alicia was not a living human being. That's right, because Alicia wasn't there. As soon as the horses came, Alicia disappeared. Mm-hmm. But indeed, ten years ago, there had been a group, a cult living in that, hiding out in that area, and the violent cult. The short story is Alicia had been killed and and buried in the in that area. The father was sent to prison and the mother was sent to prison for a short time. And after she was released, uh, 
she was able to tell her story in the newspaper and grandma was able to find the mother of the deceased girl whose name was Alicia. Mm-hmm. And for crazy cult reasons, they had taken away the dolls of this girl and gave her a flashlight from which she was inseparable. So the living Haley was able to draw a picture of the deceased Alicia in her old clothes, uh, um, bib top overalls and tied back pigtails. So, and, and in the book they show a pic, they show Haley's sketch of the girl who used to live there, had been dead for 10 years, described what she looked like, what her name was correctly, and the fact she was attached to this flashlight because they had taken away her dolls and gave her the flashlight. Hmm. So this is a case that uh, passes a lot of different tests. And if, if just so that I, I'm clear about this, th- that mother also had been in prison for her murder? That's right. I see. She was a uh, an accessory. Mm-hmm. Well, the, a- the crazy father was a, was a cult. And I, I don't remember what the inside, well, I don't know why they killed the girl. Yeah. But in, in any case, you suggest that this story is evidential of, of survival because it, it would seem that the child, Alicia, murdered 10 years prior, was, was still active in spirit form. That's a, that's, a thing that, that's a thing that impresses me. She's active, able to initiate activity. And first of all, she, she helped keep the six-year-old alive. The reason the tour guide got involved in that is that he was there when the kid was rescued and he said there's no way he leads people in careful trips in and out of this area this is is like a a day-long hike to try and accomplish this a little girl in flip-flops would be in life's peril to try and do that so he was he wrote this whole book drawing paths through the canyon trying to figure out how she could have possibly done that without getting killed. Well, the the story surely suggests the existence of a spirit world. It it shows that certainly that something survives. And and the idea that such a world could interact with the physical world by virtue of the mathematics of an eight-dimensional space that you and Elizabeth Rauscher have worked on uh, makes good sense. If somebody survives, mm-hmm. that, that is, there's sort of prima facie evidence that this little girl survived at least to the extent of doing helpful stuff. That yeah. is, her spirit was efficacious. Mm-hmm. As it's more than just a shadow on the wall. So I, I would view your model, if I, uh, to the extent that I understand it, as being a, a dualistic model. There's a separate spirit world, there's a physical world, and they interact with each other according to the, the underlying mathematics of, of an eight-dimensional space that you've described. Oh, I would never say there's a spirit world. Mm-hmm. I would say we all reside in an eight-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. That is, when somebody calls me up on the phone, as happened when I worked at Lockheed, I'd given a talk to a wealthy community in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the next day, my hostess called me up. I'm sitting at my screen spreading numbers for the next year, which is my least favorite thing. Because of my bad vision, I hate to have to do spreadsheets on the screen. And what she wanted to know is, could I help her find something? And I said, well, possibly. And she said, well, I lost my tennis bracelet, and my husband will kill me if I don't find it. And I said, well, I don't know what a tennis bracelet is. And she explained there's this beautiful platinum circlet uh, covered with diamonds, and it had been a present from her husband, and she can't find it anywhere. She looked everywhere. Can I help her? So I just swung my chair away from the video monitor where I was doing, closed my eyes, and I said to her, well, do you have a place on your property where there's two four-by-four uprights with pointy tops? I see these two four-by-fours set in the grass. So I, I, 
I didn't see her bracelet. I just shared with her the image that came to me. And she said, well, near the back door of my house, there's a place, there are two four by fours to protect the house from people who might run into it with a car. Well, I said, I don't know what it means, but go take a look by those four by fours because they meet my requirements. It's a clear image unrelated to my anxiety or wish fulfillment or preconditions or daily baggage. They unasked for a clear image. And she came back from her two four by fours and said, I'm so happy. Thank you so much. She did not say the magic words. How can I help you? Can I give you anything to support your research? But she was very grateful that I found her bracelet. Mm -hmm. So I think that we reside in this eight space. Mm -hmm. That if, if you call me up and say, would you find something for me? I don't have to go through a bunch of mumbo jumbo as any experienced remote viewer would not have to. Uh, that, that, that space is available. I think we reside in that, what Lung Shapa, Lung Chen Rabjan is a great, uh, Buddhist teacher of the 12th century. He said, who we are is timeless awareness. We reside in this timeless space that's available and we're not made of meat and potatoes it's the idea that if you think that who you are is what you see in the mirror in the morning you're in for a lot of suffering but lunch and rob john said is that you're timeless awareness mm -hmm. and because your consciousness is timeless there's no cause and effect for consciousness if you're out of time cause and effect doesn't apply so you're able to see into the future as well as in the distance. So I think that the space in which we reside is not, I don't think there's a separate psychic space. Mm -hmm. That is as a um, idealist. I, I resist the idea of psychic, of, of any kind of dualistic thing dualistic space so i think we reside in the space in which we reside our consciousness is just part of awareness that is consciousness is not made of meat and potatoes in a sense any more than we are that is whatever survives survives in this uh space-time realm that coexists with where we ourselves reside so you've identifying yourself as an idealist i would say so certainly mm -hmm. certainly not a dualist yeah well russell targ this has been a great conversation i'd uh, like to tell you one last story okay about survival a sh much shorter story uh my daughter elizabeth died um a decade ago and a few years after her passing, uh, I started getting phone calls from people with messages from Elizabeth. Yeah. And one of the messages was from our mutual friend, Jane Catra, who said that she was in an interview and someone came to her, uh, a nurse at the table who was part of the interview. And the nurse said, uh, do you know a tall woman with dark hair who died not too long ago. I shouldn't break up this interview, but this woman is very insistent that I give you a message. And Jane is very embarrassed. She didn't want to do psychic stuff in the middle of a job interview. But she said, yes, I know such a person. And the nurse said, well, she has a message for her father, me. And she says, very, nurse says, very important because this deceased person, woman says that if you give him this message, he will then be confident that I've survived and that I'm still there. And the message she had is tell my father about the traumatic events when I was about two years old, when he and his wife, my mother, was trying to stuff me into a red dress. And it was traumatic for me. 
They don't know it was traumatic. They, of course, didn't abuse me. That's not the kind of story. But they just stuffed me into this dress like it was potatoes being stuffed into a sack. And I fought fiercely and eventually was able to put my overalls back on. So the very embarrassing story of poorly dealing with a child. It's my first child. I was 26 years old, didn't know what the hell I was doing, nor did my wife. But, and I'd never mentioned, I never told that embarrassing, stupid story to anybody. So it was like my secret shame that I had never shared. But Elizabeth, the deceased Elizabeth, knew that communicating this story to Jane through the nurse would convince me that um, some aspect of my daughter survived because she was able to give me information that did not exist in any living person or in any book or anywhere. Jane just called me up and said, did you actually do something like that? Was there a red dress trauma? Mm -hmm. And I said, there certainly was. And I, as Elizabeth told your nurse, I find that utterly convincing that spirit survives. Well, that's quite a story. And, and I know we've done a separate uh, interview about uh, your wonderful daughter, who I knew as well, uh, who was both a parapsychology researcher and a, a medical doctor and a, a researcher on uh, psychic healing. But uh, I guess the important lesson here is that you, a uh, person who started out your career as a laser physicist and a logical positivist, are are now convinced of the existence of survival. Of yes, I'm a reformed logical positivist yeah. now. I think that I no longer think it's necessary to burn the believers. Well, Russell Targ, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm glad to share my stories.